From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, Father John Trujillo, our, our producer extraordinaire, Mr. Michael McCall, uh, with whom, without whom's services we would not be able to produce this program, is a creature of habit, and he's got his little cookie-cutter template that he puts t- together the show prep notes with, and he couldn't bother on this Monday, on this day that we're having a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line, couldn't even take the phone numbers off the, the T-sheet, the, the little the little <laughs> notes here for us, even though we're not going to use the phones today. I'm just, I'm appalled is what I am. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> welcome to EWTN. You're going to hear about that after this one. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> welcome to, well, I'm, I'm not in the studio with him today, so uh, that's okay. how I can get away with it. Um, <laughs> it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we will not be taking your phone calls, but we've got brand new content for you here on this Labor Day. We hope that you're enjoying your uh, Labor Day weekend. And um, uh, Father Trujillo, I want to start with a text, and I, I don't know how familiar you'll be with this particular thing, but if you, if you are, you can answer. If you're not, then we'll move on. But uh, John sent us a text, and he said, if a conciliar pronouncement contradicts a previous counsel, which takes precedent? And he's referring specifically to uh, Vatican II overturning the paragraph 714 of the Council of Florence. And I'm sure you've mer- memorized the Council of Florence documents. <laughs> well, you if you're familiar with that more. in particular, you can answer. If, if um, not, in general, which would I can take say precedent? in general that. Anything that's defined by any council cannot be contradicted by a future council um, because then it just destroys the whole idea of um, infallibility. We certainly we believe that ecumenical councils and those decrees of the ecumenical council, which the Roman pontiff uh, assents to, okay, gives full assent, uh, are are infallible just as much as an ex cathedra. Uh, pronouncement like the Assumption or the Immaculate Conception. So it would not be possible for a council to solemnly define something and have a pope sanction that and then have it contradicted by a future council. Now, we don't believe in conciliarism where a council is higher than a Roman pontiff, um, but just as a case that no pope can overturn uh, uh, solemnly defined teaching of a previous pope. So no pope can go and throw out the assumption or the Immaculate Conception. That's not possible. Neither can the Second Vatican Council overturn something that was solemnly defined. Now, that doesn't mean the uh, prudential judgments of councils or the way they describe things, they're not set in stone, but a de fide uh, statement and again, you have to go to your Densgers and Caridian Symbolorum and check out to see if these things are de fide, um, which sometimes there's the way in which something was said or it was something that was not solemnly defined. And so I could see where, um, like a local council, obviously doesn't have the charism of infallibility. Uh, the Council of, of Elvira, which met in 306, uh, we say is the... Uh, vehicle by which 
uh, celibacy was made um, normative in the Western Church, that wasn't an infallible statement. That was an infallible counsel, but it certainly was normative, and uh, you know it's been respected by a subsequent counsel. So, without knowing precisely what um, the allegation is that the Vatican Council contradicted in the Council of Florence, I would need to know specifically what number, uh, Denziger number, that was in question. 833-288-EWTN, but you don't need that phone number because it's a very special <laughs> mailbag edition of EWTN. So I, I complained about Michael McCall being See? a creature of habit, and then I just fell right what into my own around, trap. goes around, comes around. I fell into my own trap. It serves me right. Um, we got an email here from Paul, and he said, During the Last Supper, when Jesus gave the bread and wine and stated, This is my body, this is my blood, do this in memory of me, was he referring to Peter or to everyone else as well? Um, when he was saying um, the consecration, you mean? During the Last Supper, yeah. Was he just talking to Peter? Or was he talking? No, to he was talking to all of them because um, you know he was addressing... It's I think it's more evident in the ancient languages, you know, the... The articles that are used, uh, the the you, whether it's singular or plural, but obviously the context too is that he's not. If he just wanted Peter, he would just set him aside. All the apostles were there at the Last Supper, and the verbs that are used, the the language that is used, which sometimes isn't as precise in English, it's very clear that he's addressing this to all the apostles, so that they all had that power. Because obviously, not only that we have it at the Last Supper, but then subsequently the apostles then replicated what they were told to do, do this in memory of me. And so all of them did it, not just Peter, you know, uh, James and John and the rest uh, did the same. So if, if there was any ambiguity or, or concern, that would have immediately popped up. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. We've got a question here from um, from either Helena or Helena, depending upon how you want to pronounce it. In in Montana, it would be Helena. In, here in Alabama, it would be Helena. But she says, how can we be sure that Catholicism is the one true religion? We can be sure because Jesus said, go to St. Peter, thou art Peter upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whatever you declare bound on earth is bound in heaven. He's establishing his church on the rock of Peter. And Peter was uh, the, the visible head of the church, and all the popes are successors of St. Peter. Uh, that's a title that they've always um, you know, um, embraced. And in fact, you know, Peter was martyred in Rome, and so... The Pope is simultaneously the head of the church and the Bishop of Rome. So we have that apostolic Petrine ministry, as well as the fact that Jesus entrusted to the Catholic Church all seven sacraments, not two, but all seven, and the fullness of revelation, both sacred scripture and sacred tradition. We have the magisterium, which is the teaching authority of the church. So for more than 2,000 years, we've had this continuity and without Jesus specifically saying, I'm founding the Catholic Church, he founded it on the rock of Peter. And, you know, Peter and his successors, it was St. Ambrose, I believe, who said, Ubi Petrus Ibi Ecclesia. Where Peter is, there is the church. Eight, three, well, I did it again. 
It's a very special <laughs> mailbag edition. Five, five, five. <laughs> Open line Monday. We'll give out your personal cell phone number when we're done here, Father John, so everybody can call with their questions. Yes. Belinda says, if you don't believe in transubstantiation, can you still be Catholic? No. <laughs> That's a quick answer, but, I mean, uh, obviously you may have difficulty understanding it. Um, you know, it, it is a mystery, so there's no way that you could prove it. But it's an article of faith, and, you know, Catholicism is not cafeteria, pick and choose, um, you know, what you like, what you dislike. It's not like with these restaurants where you pick from column A, B, or C. Uh, transubstantiation is essential to the Catholic faith as the divinity of Christ, uh, the resurrection, the Immaculate Conception. All the dogmas of the Church are all interconnected. So if you take out one, you're going to take out all of them. And the belief that the that the Holy Eucharist is the real presence, and that at Mass, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ become present uh, through the changing of the substances of bread and wine, but through the ordained priest saying the words of Christ. That is essential. It's not the only essential. It's part of those essentials that are non-negotiable. Timothy would like to know, what is the definition of marriage in the Catholic faith? A marriage is a sacred covenant and between a man and a woman, which we believe goes back to Adam and Eve, but Jesus is the one who raised marriage from the natural estate or institution to the level of a sacrament. And he did that, obviously, by performing his first public miracle at the wedding feast of Cana and also in the Gospels where he was asked about divorce and remarriage. He said, well, no, you know, that was not what God intended, that, you know, the man and the woman to become one flesh. So that's the essence of marriage, that is a man and a woman who are united for the rest of their natural lives and is a covenant, which is more than a contract. A uh, contract was something that, you know, can be done between businesses as well as individuals. A covenant is only between persons and the husband and the wife, the bride and groom, commit themselves to each other into a uh, faithful, a permanent, and God-willing fruitful union. And if any one of those three are missing, then it's not considered uh, a sacrament. The two baptized persons must pledge that. You're listening to a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday on this Labor Day 2021. Father John Tregilio is in the house answering your questions, so we won't be taking your phone calls today as we empty out the mailbag. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father, with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, we've got a great offering from EWTN's Religious Catalog. It's the Live Truth, Live Catholic t-shirt. It's a very soft, 100% combed, ring-spun, fine jersey cotton t-shirt, and it features the popular EWTN tagline, Live Truth, Live Catholic, written in red on the soft gray shirt. On the back is the EWTN logo in red and black ink. Sizes range from small to triple XL, and uh, I know that uh, I think... The entire EWTN Open Line Monday team are grateful for the X's uh, in that sizing uh, lineup. 
And they're available now at EWTN's religious catalog. Uh, that's EWTNRC.com, offering free standard shipping on online orders of $75 or more. Standard shipping in the continental U.S. only. Use the code FREE at checkout. Check it out today. It's the Live Truth, Live Catholic t-shirt at EWTNRC.com. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls. We're emptying out the rather sizable mailbag that we've accumulated here. Uh, Gus writes in, Father, how can I consecrate myself to St. Joseph if I already consecrate myself to Jesus every day? Isn't a consecration a total self-giving? How can you totally give yourself to two different persons? That's a good question. And uh, normally, you know, it would sound like that this was not possible. Like, for instance, we were just talking about marriage. You can only commit yourself to one person. That's why the church is not in favor of polygamy, okay? You can only pledge yourself to one human being, uh, your whole heart and soul, uh, at one moment. That doesn't mean that, you know, parents can have more than one child, obviously. But in the state of marriage, that special covenant, it's it's a total commitment, body and soul. Um, but now when you're consecrating yourself to St. Joseph or to the Virgin Mary, it's possible because they're, they are right now in union with God. So there's no competition. And the beauty about divine love is that it's not parceled out. It's not um, quantitative. It's qualitative. So the more I love God, the more love I have available. And if I consecrate myself to Jesus in his, in his sacred heart, I can also consecrate myself to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to St. Joseph and to any number of other saints uh, because divine love is infectious and it, it multiplies. You know, Jesus says how many times in the gospel, a hundredfold, you know, that image of multiplication. So uh, it, it, St. Um, or not saying yet, but um, uh, Venerable um, um, Pope Emeritus Benedict would often say, Catholicism is not either or, it's both and. So I would say you have nothing to worry about consecrating the St. Joseph. Uh, you've got plenty of love and faith left in you, and you're not giving any competition to Jesus because St. Joseph is with our Lord right now. You just had... Uh... Pope Benedict bilocating between heaven and uh, <laughs> and earth. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? You know, we've had some calls that came in specifically for you on our listener comment line. Let's listen to one of those now. Hi, Mike from Buffalo, New York. I have a question about uh, cremation. My father-in-law was cremated about nine years ago, and my wife keeps him in the appropriate container but refuses to bury him. He's his ashes are in our house. I don't believe I'll ever see him buried unless I outlive my wife and I do it myself. Where do I go from here? Thank you. Well, the man has, has my um, sympathies. Um, obviously, it's your wife's prerogative. Those are her. That's her dad. So I would not say to you, bury them against their wishes. I would just say that that was the proper thing to do. That's what the church uh, wants us to do, is bury them in the container, either in the ground, or you can bury them at sea, but not scatter them over the waters or scatter them in the air or keep them at home. But I know some people just don't want to get detached by that. Um, I would say the best thing is if, you know, your your wife's close to the parish priest, maybe have him talk to her um, or maybe get something from the diocese. But I wouldn't want this to be a bone of contention. 
Uh, she's not committing any sin, per se, in doing this, because, uh, again, this is maybe her way of mourning. But we want people to believe in the resurrection. And, you know, this is why we bury the dead, because we commend their remains to the earth or to the sea uh, in the hope of the resurrection. That's why we don't scatter. But when people keep them at home or worse yet, they they never pick up the ashes. They leave them at the funeral parlor. Um, it's not a good thing, but uh, I would never want you to go against her back or, you know, cause consternation in the in the in the marriage by telling her, you know, it's either this or that, you know, or, or, or there's going to be dire consequences. But just lovingly, you know, and every now and then, you know, say to her and find out from the cemetery because lots of times people don't realize there's no charge or very small charge. They they can bury the the cremains in an existing grave already, especially if someone's already in there. Uh, they don't have to dig too deep, and, and that's fine, too. Again, it's a very special mailbag edition of Open Line Monday here on this Labor Day. Uh, JT says, is listening to a Catholic podcast or radio show and thoughtfully meditating on the subject being talked about, can this be considered a form of prayer? Absolutely. Because prayer is raising the mind and heart to God. So whether you're doing it, you know, um, in your room, uh, whether you're doing it in your car, outside, if you use an electronic uh, medium to help you, uh, you know, all the nice apps that people now have on their smartphones, uh, you know, uh, it takes the place of all the nice little prayer books we used to have to carry around. I mean, when I was in the seminary, you know, I used to shove all these little prayer books into my little stall there. We all had our own little place there and you had your favorite novena book your favorite this book and that book and you know as well as your breviary and now with the you know new medium you could have all that at your fingertips which i think is a wonderful thing so listening to a podcast uh, whether it's fulton sheen or um, i like to listen to uh, pope benedict's uh, books you know on jesus uh, and use that as, as, as a meditation so yes by all means i would say you can do that as and consider that part of your prayer uh, next up, we have an email from Francis, and I think you're probably going to take exception with the premise of the email a little bit here. But um, they write, in Matthew, we read that we are not to repeat prayers. In my daily prayers, is it okay to have the same petitions over and over? Well, what, what's in the gospel about uh, against rep repetition is not the same request. Uh, it's just the rattling on of prayers. That's what Jesus was condemning, the rattling on of prayers, because the pagans merely believed in the sheer number. It was purely uh, quantitative, so that if you, you know, like, in, especially in the Roman and the Greek uh, uh, religions, you know, uh, you go to the soothsayer or the oracle of Delphi or one of the Vestal Virgins, and they would say, well, here's, you say these little prayers to the deities and say them 20 times, okay? Um, well, that's not what Christianity believes, and certainly not Catholicism uh, in particular, and when people say, well, why did the priest give me five Hail Marys? Or, you know, what about the rosary? Jesus never put a limit on how many times to pray the Our Father. Um, you know, and he says, he gives examples in the parables of a woman who kept asking and asking and asking until the judge relented. So perse perseverance is a good thing. It's just the, the sheer repetition for repetition's sake that he condemns. But if you say, it's like saying, I love you. Certainly, you know, uh, you wouldn't want to say to someone, only say it once in your life to your spouse. But if you're saying it, you know, sort of serendipitously and saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, it doesn't have the same meaning as if you say it with full intent. I love you, I love you, I love you. So when we pray, the numbers mean something. 
if we put our heart and soul into it. Again, we won't be taking any phone calls today. It's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday on this Labor Day. Craig says, how should one deal with the sin of lust? I struggle with this at my college campus, and it's difficult to discuss this with my peers. I was hoping someone of faith could give me some good advice. Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because certainly we have it here at the center. We're on a campus with a university, and, you know, um, there's a girl's soccer team outside that uh, will be in at least in a few weeks. Uh, you know, temptations are there, and the best way to fight temptation against lust, okay, uh, the virtue of chastity, sometimes um, doing some very, very modest and with the permission of your spiritual director or confessor, some mortification, okay, again, it's not punishment, uh, it's a little self-denial so that you get used to saying no, but very, very small. We don't want this to become something like, you know, very penal and odious. But also, in addition to mortification, certainly prayer, prayer to Our Lady, the rosary is, is a certain, uh, certainly a big help, the use of holy water. But here's someone that, a lot, that many people may not think of either. When you're being tempted, either with lust or anger, it's a very powerful emotion. And sometimes prayer itself doesn't do the trick. I suggest to many of my spiritual directees, think of something funny, a favorite scene of, of a movie, uh, something that all, hopefully is, is innocent and, and innocuous. But like for me, I think of a favorite Three Stooges movie where they hit everybody with pies in the face. If I reconjure that image in my mind while I'm being tempted in, in lustful things of the flesh, guess what? My attention is distracted enough that I can say, okay, now I'm more in control. I can walk away from this thing. Whereas if I'm just obsessing about being tempted in, with a sin of the flesh, sometimes it's, it's not helpful. So think of something humorous can help diffuse the moment. And it even works when you're getting very angry with someone and you may you know, say something you regret or do something. Again, uh, certainly prayer is going to be helpful, but also bring to mind something uh, very uh, innocent and humorous. And that in many times uh, deflates uh, the, the pent-up emotions. And Albert sends us an email and he says, if a priest is no longer allowed to practice, were all the sacraments he performed invalid? No. Uh, once validly ordained, always validly ordained. Now what can happen is the bishop and the pope can restrict your practice of that. So these priests who have been defrocked uh, for doing horrible, despicable things and uh, they're now forcefully laicized and they no longer have the faculties uh, they're still able, um, the, the sacraments they celebrate are still valid. All the sacraments they had prior to that are valid. And if, you know, someone's in danger of death and there's no one available, and here's an, a former, I wanted to say former priest, but uh, a, a laicized priest, he can still hear their confession. If this is in danger of death and there's nobody else available, he still is able to do that. Uh, he would still uh, validly celebrate Mass, but if he's been suspended... Uh, it's not listed, and he's committing a sin, but it would still be valid. So um, now, normal confessions where somebody knows this is an ex-priest and this is in danger of death, uh, he doesn't have faculty, so the confessions would not be uh, valid. You need to go to a, a regular priest who has um, credentials. But if it's danger of death, he can anoint, he can uh, hear your confession. Uh, so the validity of the sacrament is not contingent upon the spiritual state of the celebrant. 
Again, this is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we're not taking your phone calls today. But we'd love to take this opportunity to invite you to be part of a future mailbag program, and you can do that by sending us an email. The email address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. And just put uh, Father Tregilio or Monday into the subject line and we'll get it where it needs to go. It's EWTN's Open Line Monday with Father John Tregilio. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. And we are emptying out the mailbag today on this Labor Day 2021 with the special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line. Uh, Philip writes in, where did the idea of purgatory come from? Why does the Orthodox Church not have this concept? Okay, well, the, the, the scriptural basis is from the book of Maccabees, um, where uh, there were some faithful Jewish soldiers who fought for the faith and fought for Israel, and they were uh, slaughtered. And when they were burying them, uh, they found some lucky charms and amulets on them. So uh, they thought, well, let's pray for them, even though they're already dead, hoping that in the afterlife, you know, these small sins they committed will hopefully be uh, expiated. So they prayed for the dead, and that was the first example of prayers for the dead. And you can only pray for the dead if there's something other than heaven and hell, because if, in, if you're in heaven, you don't need prayers. And if you're in hell, prayers aren't going to do you any good. You're, you're in there forever. So there must be some midway between heaven and, and hell uh, outside of earth. And that's what the church, uh, you know, uh, where she got the idea of purgatory. Now, it's true that the word purgatory uh, isn't found explicitly in the Bible, but neither is the word Bible found in the Bible. Um, it was the Council of Trent that solemnly defined the existence of purgatory, but the church had believed in it uh, for centuries before that. And so the practice of praying for the dead goes back to uh, apostolic times uh, when they would say Mass in the catacombs. Pray, they would pray for those who had died for the faith if they weren't already in heaven. They prayed for them on that journey. And again, purgatory is not jail. It's not hell with, with a parole. Uh, purgatory comes from the word purgatus, which means to purge or cleanse. It's not punishment uh, in a sense of going to jail. Uh, it's the pain or suffering that's medicinal, like when you do have to go to the hospital. And, you know, when I was a chaplain, I have to go visit somebody in isolation. I would have to scrub my hands very aggressively. Otherwise, they wouldn't let me in. Well, it hurt, and my hands would be bright red from that. Then they could let you in because, you know, there was a lot of unseen dirt that had to be cleansed from that. So that's what the church's uh, belief of purgatory is based upon, that this is a, a medicinal um, component. And uh, certainly uh, people, there are people who go directly to heaven who don't need purgatory. Some people do their, as they say um, uh, colloquially, they do their purgatory here on earth. Um, but... Other people, and I know I'm probably, I hope, God, I get the purgatory at least, because then everyone there knows they're definitely be going going to heaven. It's just 
they're preparing themselves. I think Father Benedict Rochelle gave a wonderful analogy. He said uh, purgatory isn't the suburb of hell. It's a suburb of, of heaven that you're outside. You're close. You can hear the singing and smell the good food, but you're not there yet. So the pain of waiting to when you're ready to go uh, is, is the best uh, analogy, I think. Uh, Emily asks, why would God put the tree of the knowledge the tree of knowledge in the garden if he knew Adam and Eve would fall? Well, he also knew that Satan would fall too, but uh, he created Satan or Lucifer with a free will. He gave Adam and Eve a free will. And even though God knows our future, he still allows things to happen because we have free will. And that's the beauty that, especially as human beings, you know, our will can change. And unlike an angel's, they have one act of the will, and then it's for all eternity. So when Lucifer and the third of the angels went bad, there was no going back. With Adam and Eve and you and I, we make a bad decision. We, we commit a, a, a bad thing, commit a sin. If we're still alive the next day, we have the benefit of being able to repent and go to confession and, and have our sins uh, you know, forgiven. And so you know, why God you know, created people that he knew were going to fall. He also knew that people were going to, you know, that good would come from the mistakes that people made. That's the mystery of evil and suffering, that sometimes things that happen, although, you know, it was not good initially, greater good can come from the bad that has. So obviously, you know, we at the Easter Vigil, we, we sing at the Exalted, uh, O Happy Fault, Felix Culpa, the necessary sin of Adam that won for us so great a redeemer. It's not celebrating that Adam and Eve sinned, but it's acknowledging the fact that because of Adam and Eve's sin, we needed a redeemer, and we got Jesus. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, not taking your phone calls today on this uh, Labor Day. Uh, Bill writes in, he says, all, all are, he asks, <laughs> all are all sins equal? Uh, why is there such an emphasis on the sins of the flesh in the Catholic Church? Well, I wouldn't necessarily say there's uh, all emphasis on the flesh. Uh, the flesh is the most obvious ones, but obvious. I mean, you know, we we call the seven deadly or seven capital sins for a reason. Lust is only one of the seven. Um, it's just that in lust, there's no poverty of matter. That is, you know, um, in, in in areas of sexuality. It's usually either a sin or not a sin. In other areas, you know, there may be more uh, imprudence or uh, a misjudgment, um, you know, um, whether it's uh, anger or um, envy or something like that. So it's just that in lust, you know, we don't want people to think there's so many different levels and grades that, you know, you can you got a lot more leeway. Uh, you don't because uh, it's very cl- uh, cut and dry. You know, uh, either you know you know you're doing what's wrong, and it is wrong, or it, it's not. Other areas there may be some some ambiguity because of the person's uh, consequence of, of of original sin. We have concupiscence, we have a weakening of the will, a darkening of the intellect, an imbalance of the lower passions. So sometimes we don't see as clearly as as we would like, or as you know, even Scripture tells us, you know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But I would say we're not just hung up on you know, sex sins or sins of the flesh. It's just that they're the most uh, obvious or recognizable. But certainly um, anger, uh, envy, all the other deadly sins are exactly that, deadly. Let's take a listen to another of our listener comment line calls. K. San Diego. Since Jews don't believe that Jesus Christ has come yet, 
and aren't baptized, what happens then when they pass and they're not baptized? Okay, well, uh, the Church believes that everyone is capable of being saved, and as St. Augustine phrased it, everyone is given sufficient grace to be saved. It's efficacious to those who cooperate with it. And the Catholic Church solemnly teaches that it's through baptism, uh, through Jesus Christ, and through the Catholic Church that uh, everyone is saved. Now, someone who through no fault of their own does not know and does not explicitly, deliberately uh, reject Christ and his church is going to be held accountable because of their ignorance. So if someone lives their life as a faithful Jew and has never um, concretely, uh, overtly, deliberately rejected Christ, they've just not pursued that, God's not going to condemn them. And there is what we call uh, a baptism of desire that's uh, implicit through people through invincible ignorance. So people who do not know and are not making a conscious uh, rejection of of Christ, they can be, um, what we would say, um, baptized through an implicit desire. Now, uh, I wouldn't necessarily endorse the the terminology, but someone uh, along the line used the phrase anonymous Christians. I I just don't think that that satisfies all the, the the. the parameters that are needed, but the idea is still there. And even St. Thomas Aquinas talks about baptism of water, which is a sacrament, uh, baptism of, of blood, which the martyrs, uh, especially in the early church, who died before their baptism, but also a baptism of desire that someone would have wanted to be baptized if if they had known about it or had known or had been heard about the Christian message. Now, people might say today, well, who doesn't know about Jesus? It's all over the internet. It's everywhere. That's different from someone who actually has made that conscious decision. Did they look into it? They think about it? Did they pray about it? Then did they reject or accept it? That's the question. So, yes, it's possible for someone through no fault of their own uh, to be saved by Christ, to be saved by the church through an implicit baptism uh, if if they've done that uh, with a sincere conscience. But it's something that is I would not want to take a chance on. That's why we as Catholic Christians, we still have an obligation to evangelize and spread the, the gospel. Carson would like to know why being a lukewarm Christian is a bad thing. Well, it's like uh, picking up a glass of uh, lukewarm milk. <laughs> I never, I, I think there's nothing more disgusting either. I like hot milk or ice cold milk, but it's lukewarm. Blech. I mean, it's, it's Jesus used that, that very... Uh, graphic scene in, in the book Revelation. Be hot or cold, but if you be lukewarm, I shall vomit thee out of my mouth. Um, lukewarmness is this uh, um, uh, tepidity, okay? Uh, it's mediocrity. You're neither hot nor cold. And the reason why that's dangerous is that a lot of Christians like to be comfortable in that area where they say, well, I'm not, I'm not that bad, but I'm not that good. Well, that's lukewarmness. And, you know, we don't want people to be on fire, evil or sinful, but we want them to be on fire with the faith and the truth and not just be content with just getting by. You know, like, what do I need just to, you know, get through? It's more like, what more can I do? So that's why uh, lukewarmness is dangerous because it can lead to what we call achadia, uh, spiritual laziness. Um. Arthur is next, and he wants to know, what does the Catholic Church teach about the rapture? 
Well, the church has no official uh, teaching on the rapture because, you know, it was never coined in, uh, in Christianity until, you know, maybe like the 18th century. Uh, some Protestant theologian came up with this uh, hypothesis of the rapture because the, the word uh, rapture comes from the Latin rapturus, which means to be taken. And there's a scene in the gospel, uh, a parable, where Jesus said, the, uh, you know, at the end uh, times, you know, um, one will be taken, one will be left behind. Um, now, it's Hollywood in their movies and in the book, you know, Left Behind series books. It makes it seem as if those who are taken were taken to heaven and those who are left behind are evil. Well, that's not what it says in the, in the text. It just says some one will be taken, one will be left behind. In essence, it's better if you were left behind because you still have an opportunity to repent and go to confession if you need to. Whereas if you were one of the taken, what your spiritual state at that moment is what determines whether you go to heaven or hell. And uh, so, you know, we can, we can just presume that, you know, if this thing happens. But what I find interesting is they must, someone who did the movies must have watched old Star Trek episodes because there was an episode where they, after Captain Kirk went on a ship and there was only people's uniforms laying there and a pile of salt. And, you know, they say, well, if people are raptured, their clothes are left behind. Where is that in this in the in the text? I don't you know, it's on Star Trek. It wasn't in, in, in the Bible. So we don't we don't talk about the rapture because we don't believe that it is something per se I mean, I'm not saying that it won't happen, but the church isn't saying something to look forward to. You know, and I think that part of scripture also talks about it as in the days of Noah. Yeah. Well, in the in the days of Noah <laughs> the bad guys got taken in the flood, the good guys were left behind, huh? Yes. Hey, uh, again, we won't be taking your phone calls today. It's a special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. Be sure to join us tomorrow for EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes again right here at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Radio. Uh, we have another listener comment line call. Let's take a listen. When I was wondering, babies and all people that are non-Catholic, non-Christians that don't get baptized to no fault of their own and don't know the knowledge of Christianity, do they have no way of being saved? He clearly didn't believe your previous answer, so reiterate. <laughs> yes, uh, but I know it's, it's, a, it's a question that's on my, many people's minds. Um, there was um, um, a document called Dominus Jesus. Um, I think it was very helpful for people to to read. Uh, it talks about uh, you know that uh, salvation comes through Christ and through the Church, and but that means that people through and again here's the key factor: who through no fault of their own did not know that they needed Jesus, they needed the sacraments, they needed the Church, can be saved because it's through no fault of their own. It's only when someone knows this, and openly, freely, conscientiously, deliberately rejects it. So those people who die without baptism, I think about all the babies who are aborted. I think of people who uh, uh, babies die through miscarriage. Uh, you know, we, we, we believe in, in the baptism of desire, and the mercy of God extends well beyond our confines. So, uh, yes, I believe it's certainly possible and probable there are people who are saved Again, who through no fault of their own did not openly reject Christ. It's you have to deliberately, you know, put yourself in that peril for you to uh, not be saved. Because Jesus, again, he came to to save all men and women, not just a few.
Again, it's a very uh, special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday, so we won't be taking your phone calls today. Um, Franklin asks, I understand that Mary needed to be sinless up until Jesus' birth, but why did she need to remain sinless until death? Well, it's not that she needed to remain sinless. It was appropriate that she would because, remember, the angel said, Hail, full of grace, gratia plena in Latin, or que carito mene in Greek. And when something's full, that means there's no room for anything else. So if Mary's full of grace, then there's no room for sin. And so Mary was sinless, um, obviously foremost, so that she'd give Jesus a sinless, untainted human uh, nature, but also was appropriate since she was going to be the mother of the Savior. He's going to grow up. He's going to have to have a, a human mother um, help raise him. So it was appropriate that you know his thirty of his thirty-three years would be spent you know uh, with his under his mother's care, so to speak, or close proximity to her. That she would remain sinless, so that again uh, he would not be that close to, to the contagion of, of sin. It wasn't that uh, Mary did this on her own, it was a special grace, but the church believes that she was sinless from the moment of her conception all the way through her life on earth by an act of God, and it was God's choice to do that. He didn't owe it to her. Uh, good question here from Robert. He says, how can I defend the church's teaching on abstinence before marriage to my sister who claims that it's unrealistic to expect young people to abstain? <laughs> They've been saying that for millennia, okay? Uh, yes, it's difficult to abstain. However, it has been done, okay? Uh, people prove that. I mean, I know many couples who have honestly, genuinely told me that they abstain from, from sexual relations until their wedding night. I know priests and nuns who took a vow of chastity or celibacy. They've remained faithful. I mean, we always hear the, one, the few bad ones who broke their vow, but it is humanly possible to remain chaste and uh, without sexual um, relationships, uh, either for your whole life or prior to um, you know being married in the eyes of God, it is possible. It's just the problem is that most people today believe the secular culture that says, "Oh no, this is this is unnatural." And that, well, well, no, um, marriage is between husband and wife, and sexuality is a blessing, a gift from God for marriage. We become debased animals if we say oh well we can't help it we have to do what our urges well animals do that animals you know as i was tell the seminarians you know uh, they act in instinct they don't act out of reason so you know if pooch or kitty is is uh, in heat then they're going to do it um human beings can say no just like if i'm hungry i could say no i, I i'm not going to eat i'm going to offer that up uh, when's the last time you saw a dog or cat go on a diet? <laughs> they don't look in the mirror and say, oh, I got a little biscuit belly here. I better lay off the, even if I'm hungry, I'm not going to eat that biscuit. No, they act out of instinct and human beings can act out of a, a conscious free will act. And so uh, I, I don't buy it that, you know, that this is something that's unnatural. It is difficult. Okay. But it's possible. And for a good reason. Becca would like to know, why do some of the words in the prayers said during mass change over time? Well, it's just the tweaking of the language. So Pope Benedict, uh, you know, tweaked the the Roman Missal, the third edition of the Roman Missal that we have now, and I thank every day that he did that because some of the language I found a little pedestrian and parochial. It was valid, obviously, and it was licit, 
but it was a prudential judgment. So uh, it, it, especially when you compared uh, prior to that the, the, the English text as it was compared to the typical Latin text, there was a lot of things missing in there. Uh, not Again, it had, didn't affect the validity or lyseity of the sacraments, but you know, it, it wasn't as uh, poetic or as colorful. So now we restored that, and it may change again because language is, is fluid. Uh, so, you know, when they were talking in the Eucharist prayer about Jesus' holy and venerable hands, I find that edifying, okay? Using the word holy and sacred when sometimes it was just expunged for whatever reason, it then changed the meaning, but there were subtleties involved. So, yes, I can see the missile being changed uh, again if it needs to be. It wouldn't change that the previous one or the future ones would be invalid, though. Uh, David said, when Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, was he saying that heaven is temporary like earth is temporary? No, it's a figure of speech. It's like when he said, unless you hate your mother and father, brother or sister, son or daughter, you can't be my follower. Or when he said, uh, you know, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Uh, in the Hebrew language, you know, uh, it was, especially ancient Hebrew, was a little limited, didn't have superlatives. Uh, some of the comparatives were, were lacking. So to make a point, uh, Hebrew used a lot of hyperbole. So uh, this is what's being involved here. So it's not to be taken uh, too literally. Email here from Barbara. She says, what does the grace of final perseverance mean? Don't we all have this grace? And if not, why not? Well, it's something that you have to ask for and you have to want to pursue. The grace of final, the grace of final perseverance is that you're going to hold out to the very end that you want to be in the state of grace, that you are going to avoid sin, especially mortal sin, at all cost. Uh, sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we think, oh, I have a lot of time left. You know, uh, you, you might be 30, 40, 50 years old and think, oh, I'm going to live to be 80, 90. Well, maybe you're not. So, you know, the, the gift of final perseverance is that you are in the fight for the, to the very bitter end, and you don't presume that you have all the time in the world. You treat every day as if it might be your last, but not in a doom and gloom way, but in a faith-filled way like the early Christians did. It's a good question from Linda. She said, how is the first Eucharist possible when Jesus was not yet crucified? Well, the point is, it's one continuous act. Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, we call it the, the Triduum. Uh, it's the saving act. So what happened at, on Holy Thursday was real. It was certainly the, the bread and wine were consecrated. Uh, the apostles were made um, you know, priests, bishops at that moment. They were ordained. Holy Orders was established at the Last Supper. But you know, in our human minds, we chronologically see, oh, well, Holy, Holy Thursday came before Good Friday, which came before Easter Sunday. Uh, but that's on a linear, chronological human level. God is outside of time and space. So what Jesus did during the Triduum is all one continuous act there. Again, a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Monday. No phone calls today. Um, Thomas says, It's been said to me by Jesuits in my community that we should not preach, but rather dialogue with other religions. How do you respond to this? Well, I would say yes if how you define preaching is not in 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 the sense that you know like we teach the, the seminarians to preach um 
some people use the word preach like, you know, oh, you're, you're preaching to me, you know, like you're talking down to me, or you, it's a holier than thou, or it's patronizing or condescending. That's not what real preaching is. Preaching uh, in, in its real definition is edifying um, someone's soul. It's inspiring someone to aspire. You're inspiring them to aspire to holiness. That's real preaching. And But before you can preach to someone where you're encouraging them to do this for faith motives, yes, a dialogue is more than likely uh, should come uh, antecedently. That's just logic. So that you you know you talk to someone, you have a dialogue, you have to touch on common things, then to preach. But Saint Dominic, you know, the order of preachers. I mean, that's how he conquered the Albigensian heresy was through preaching and the use of the Holy Rosary. So I would not want people to think that preaching in and of itself is ineffectual, uh, or that it's only for the believers. But it's preaching and having some good. Uh, dialogue and catechesis. And again, you go back to this thing that Pope Benedict said, it's not either or, it's both and. We need good preaching, solid preaching, and we need good uh, catechesis, and we have to have honest, healthy dialogue. Just a couple minutes left here. Kathy wants to know, what is the Catholic thought on the devil and evil, especially given all the bad things in the world right now? Well, we don't want to blame everything on the devil, because then that releases us from any um, culpability. You know, we say there's three sources of, of temptation and evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So certainly the devil is behind a lot of stuff, but not everything. Sometimes it's just our concupiscence. We give in because of our weakness. Uh, you know, we have sinful things going on in the world. We have terrorism. We have uh, nasty things like that. Um, but it's not like, like Flip Wilson used to say, now I'm showing my age, you know, uh, the devil made me do it. We can't blame him for our own evils. He's going to tempt you, but you either give in freely or you don't. Father John, I hope that there's a hot dog in your future on this Labor Day weekend. I'm looking forward to an Italian sausage. Ah, well, there you go. We'll, <laughs> set, we'll settle for that. Uh, would okay. you leave us with a blessing? Absolutely. Benedica vos omnipotens Deus, Pater, et Filius, et Spiritus Sanctus. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father John Tregilio, and our producer, Mr. Michael McCall, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Monday. Back live again tomorrow with Father Wade Menezes of the Fathers of Mercy, uh, talking faith, family, and fellowship. Until we get together tomorrow, God bless.